We're going to continue our series uh, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, we've been walking through the scriptures, walking through the Bible from start to now Psalms, and uh, we're looking to Jesus. And today uh, brings us to Psalm 22, and this morning we're going to look through uh, the entire Psalm, and so we're going we're gonna to get moving here uh, to do just that. So Psalm 22, and let's look at it together. I think it was Pastor Kevin that had said, and uh, you can correct me on this quote if I'm wrong. I didn't uh, confirm this, but I think I have it right. I've heard him say it enough, that you're either in a trial, coming out of a trial, or entering a trial. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, okay, I'm pretty close. Yeah, and so Psalm 22, uh, maybe to you, seems like David had been reading your mail. I don't know if you uh, studied the psalm before this morning. If you're coming to it for the first time and we start going through it, maybe for you, you'll think, Man, he's been reading my journaling. He's been literally reading my mail. Um, I'm sick. I'm suffering. I know what it means to be alone or deserted or mocked or bullied or wounded or confused or anxious or fearful or hopeless, exhausted. Maybe you are crying out right now, my God, my God. Or maybe you know, and certainly all of us at times have known, times where we've said, my God, my God. You're praying and you're seeking counsel and you're going after God. But do you know those times where nothing seems to change? Things have actually gotten worse. And so you're sick, but you're not getting better. And you're alone and there's no friends on the horizon. And you're mocked and you're starting to think maybe they're right. You've lost your job and no one else seems to have lost theirs. You're losing your mind. You've lost your hope. And it's not getting better in your prayers. If you've had this feeling before, you're praying, and maybe you've even used this term, my prayers are hitting the ceiling. My heart is cold. There's no joy. I have no sense of God's presence anymore. I can remember it, but now I I can't. You experience what uh, some call the dark night of the soul. And maybe for some of you this morning, you're in that right now. And maybe for you, Again, you're in it, or there's been a time where you've no longer said, my God, my God, but like David, who wrote this song, you say, my God, my God, in verse 1 and 2, and you can read it. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. What happens when it seems like God is gone? If God has forsaken us, then what now? Uh, John Bloom, he's a writer for Desiring God Ministries, um, and he expressed this experience of feeling like God had forsaken him, and he uh, wrote this, and I'll read it to you. He says, That day I was seized with a grand doubt, and scales, rather than falling off, filled my eyes. God disappeared from my spiritual sight for the first time in my memory. It took no time for the word of God to produce in me the void of meaning. Work appeared meaningless. Rest appeared meaningless. Leisure appeared meaningless. The cosmos appeared meaningless. Life appeared meaningless. And so he says in this, um, he determined to do something about it. 
And he said something, he said something um, that pilots do, I decided I needed to do. An aircraft pilot must learn to do this. He must fly by the instruments. When a pilot flies into a dark cloud and loses his points of reference, it becomes a dangerous thing for him to trust his physical perceptions. He might feel like he's flying straight when he's actually descending toward the ground. So he must learn to trust what the plane's instruments are telling him, not what his thoughts and his feelings are telling him. His life depends on it. So this morning we want to look to the instruments, but to know where, or sorry, to look at the instruments, you need to know where to look. If you're in the plane and you're in the back, it's not helpful. If you're sitting in the middle, it's not going to work. You need to know to go to the cockpit and look. And that's what we're going to do this morning. When you feel forsaken by God, then you must keep your focus on God. And so we want to go to four places to then look at God, to look at the instruments through the storm. And the first is this. Look at God in the past. Look at God in the past. Look what David says in verse 3. He says, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Enthroned, he says. So the idea is, look, God, you are holy and you are inhabited by the praises of Israel. Why does he say this about Israel? Was this the good old days? You know, is that why he was surrounded by praises? Because that was the good old days. Mama, you know, tell me about the good old days. Not at all. If you know anything about what we've been looking at through the series of looking to Jesus, you know Throughout history, it has seemed over and over again that God has forsaken his people. Why is he surrounded? Why is God then surrounded by the praises of his people? Over and over again, David's not the first one to experience this. Why have you forsaken me? He's not the first voice. You, you know you've seen it through the series. People have died. People have been imprisoned. People have been abused. People have been murdered. People have been betrayed. People have suffered loss. People have been hungry, tortured, lonely. So why is this God then surrounded by the praises of his people, of Israel? Well, if you know anything through the series that we've been looking through, it's because that over and over again, though it is felt like God has forsaken his people, what have we seen over and over again? He is not. There's no way that he has. We get a bird's eye view and we see for sure that he hasn't and it starts in the garden with the fall. What do we see in the fall? There's a curse. There's a division between man and God and they're kicked out of the garden and there comes what? There's a seed. There's a promise of a seed. There's hope to come. There's a building of a boat, but there's no water. But then a flood comes and there's deliverance. Abraham's called to to, um, sacrifice Isaac. What happens? There's a substitution. There's a ram. Joseph's in prison. He's forgotten. He's falsely accused. And we see that there's a plan in this. There's a Red Sea and an army coming. What does God do? Provides a way. There's a mediator, Moses. Israel's homeless. He gives them a land. There's Goliath. And there's a deliverer. A king falls. And there's a promise of a king to come. We see this over and over and over again. And this is why I am so excited for this series, going through the Bible, looking to Jesus Because we can see, this has been, for for our small group in this church, this has been for sure the highlight of my time in our small group. We can see over and over again, though it seems God has forsaken his people, he never has. 
And look what David does. He moves now in verses 9 to 10. He moves actually from Israel's past, and now he looks at his own past. You know, my kids always, they bug me. They say, Kyle, no, they don't say that. I'd say, don't call me Kyle. <laughs> they, say, they say, Daddy, <clears throat> every memory you have, every story you have is always when you're eight or nine. And now it's just a standard joke. When did that happen? I was eight or nine. I don't, even if I knew it was 12, it's eight or nine just to bug them. David takes, no, no, not just a memory of like back when I was eight or nine. He goes even further than this. And look what he says. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust, trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from, uh, sorry, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Man, David looks back to the womb. And maybe for some of you think, oh man, not another birthing story. Come on, David. Why are we going back to the womb? Why does David mention this again and again? This isn't the first time that he's mentioned this in the Psalms. I, I can't say I can ever think of a time where I have felt the weight of darkness and suffering and I've thought back to my birth. David does this. Why? Why should we do this? Because birth screams the hand of God. We have a couple premature babies that have been born in this church. Man, when you go through that and you look back, you see the hand of God. You can't have a preemie who's born only short weeks early that is on the brink because their lungs haven't developed yet and their eyes haven't developed yet, their hands, their feet, every piece of their body, their skin... And it shows us that God is doing things in the womb that we can't even see, that God's hand is intricately involved in our lives. And so this morning you may say, I have no purpose. It feels like God has left me. I have no direction. I just wish he would tell me what his will is. It seems I have no answers for the suffering. And why won't God answer me? Why? Well, you look at the past. You look at the past. It's no accident that you are here right now. It's no accident. In fact, we say it's a miracle. It's a miracle of God. And you just go back to your birth. That's what David does. In the womb, you don't see what's going on until there's birth. It's, it's a mystery. You get an ultrasound, you get a bit of a sneak peek, I suppose. But it is a mystery. God is doing something that we can't do. And you don't see it till it's done the term. Mark Dever said uh, something to the effect of, we're good with a God who's in control, but are we good with a God, even one who's righteous, we say, and holy, but how about a God that confuses us? Are we still good with that? There's a mystery of his working. He's trustworthy. He's doing something. It has meaning. There's truly no accidents. You find yourself in the situation that you find yourself in now. You look back to your birth. You say, there is no accidents. You look back to Israel and you say, there is no accidents. God is in this and he's working redemption. So when you feel forsaken by God, you must keep your focus on God. Look at the past and then second this, look at God in the present. Look at God in the present. Now, if you're going to look at God in the present, then you need to look at your present situation. And you must look at it uh, with honesty. You can't look at God in the present if you're going to um, lie about your situation. Have you ever cut yourself before? If I had a dollar for every time I've cut myself with a... 
with something, when I'm working on something, I always cut myself. Razor, it's going to happen. And zing, and you cut yourself, and you grab it right away, right? Oh, no. And then your wife's there, or your kids are there, and they say, oh, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm fine. No one cares what you say, right? Really, you can say, yeah, I'm fine. But show me the wound, right? Like, what, what, how bad is the damage? That's what we want to see. And I can say, I'm, I'm fine all day, and not look at it. And a lot of times, I don't want to, and just think, I think I'm fine, I'm fine. But you need to look at the situation and say, how bad is it? And this is what David does. David gives us a detailed damage report of his situation. Seems God has left him, and I want to walk you through it here. Verses 1 and 2, he says, flat out, he says, God, why have you forsaken me? Look at it there. He says, basically, why have you left me? You've deserted me, God. He says, I'm groaning. That idea of groaning is roaring. I'm roaring to you, and you're doing nothing, God. He has this low view of himself, not just humble like a right view. He has a low view. He's degrading himself. He's saying, I'm just a worm. I'm not even human. And I'm scorned and despised. It's the common consensus that, yeah, it's true. That guy is a worm. She is a worm. People are disgusted at me. They're disappointed with me. They make faces at me. Literally stick out the the bottom lip at me. Verse 8, he says, his faith is being attacked. He says, they're telling me he trusts in the Lord. Look, you trust in the Lord. Let him deliver him then. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. God, where are you? They're mocking my faith now. How can you stand by? I've been faithful. Listen to what they're saying, and where are you? You're doing nothing about this. Things are urgent. Verses 11 to 13. It says, trouble is near, and there is none to help. He's surrounded by these bulls. This is where we get the idea of bullying. He's, he's surrounded. The problem with being surrounded when you're alone is you can't see your back. And no matter where you turn, your back's always exposed. Because you've ever had like a bad dream where you're surrounded Dogs, lions, bulls, and David says, I am all alone, and I cannot defend myself. I don't know what's coming. It's classic signs of depression, verses 14 to 15. It says he's poured out like water. You ever tried to hold water in your hand? You never done like one of those races, a VBS, maybe they'll do that. You know, you hold, kids hold water, and then you try to bring it to a spot, and it keeps running out. Hold oil in your hand, it just runs out. You can't hang on to it. He has no substances Life is draining away. It says, all my bones are out of joint. And I've broken a bone, and I've dislocated bones. Dislocation is far worse. And you have no strength. You can't push. You can't pick up. You can't do anything. His bones are out of joint. He has severe pain in his life. His heart is melted like wax. Why does he say that? He has no courage. It's melted. You've seen a candle, it just melts away. That's, that's his heart. There's no substance, there's no strength to it. My strength is dried up, and he talks about pottery. So this is like a broken, not just a piece of pottery, it's broken, it's shattered, my life is dry. It has no strength, it has no value. He says in verse 16, he's been wounded. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. He's been fighting off the dogs, and the idea is he's been kicking at them, and he's been pushing them with his hands, and he's getting bit up. 
been pierced all over by their teeth. I've been hurt, he says. I've been wounded. I'm literally bleeding, God. Where are you? In verse 17, he says how sick he is. He says, I can count all my bones. You get the idea of like a war camp picture. He says, I literally can look and I can count all my bones. And it seems like the common consensus is true. Now, he's not just vain. They're like, look at that guy. He can count his bones. It's obvious. It's like someone saying like, whoa, they haven't seen you for a time. They say, you've aged. It's obvious. What have you been through? And he's dying. It's verse 15. Remember he says, at the end of verse 15, he says, he's in the dust of death. There's nothing to quench his thirst. Give me some water. I can't quench my thirst. And verse 18, he is so close to death that right before him, those around him are selling his possessions. Right there, there's an auction, but not even an auction. It's gambling. It's right there is closed. You're not going to need this because you're going to be dead anyhow. And it's right in front of him happening. David gives us a graphic damage report, doesn't he? I mean, this is, this is heavy. You don't get the idea of our culture, right, where someone comes up to David and they say, how you doing, David? And David does not say, good. Good. No, I'm good. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Yes, I'm doing good. Good, good, until you snap. I'm not doing good. David says it's bad. I mean, man, he says it's bad. So what happens when it's bad? What happens not only when it's bad, but it seems like God has forsaken you? I mean, what happens if God leaves you? I mean, you get a phone call and it's bad. It makes no sense. None. You lose a lifelong investment. You've been faithful your whole life to your spouse, and she's not. Today you find out she's not. You help someone for years only to watch them fall. You sacrifice so much, and it seems God's presence has left you. So what do you do? What then? What does David do? When you feel forsaken by God, and hear this, you must focus on God. You must. Look at what David does. And this is a skimming now. In verse 3, he says, yet you. And all this, yet you's, the you's, he's speaking of God. Verse 9, he says, yet you. Verse 19, he says, but you. You have. Verse 24, he has. He has not. Verse 31, he has done it. This is incredible. And what happens in verses 22 to 25, when there's no indication that anything's changed, remember remember the damage report. We have zero indication that his situation has changed. And what is incredible is what happens, and what we see in verses 22 to 25 is there's worship by David. Did you know that? There's worship by David. Verses 22, David says this, and this is unbelievable. He says, I will praise you. From you comes my praise. The King James Version, this is verse 25, from you comes my praise, says, my praise shall be of thee. And we know David means it. Okay, David means it. How do we know that David actually means it? He's not just kind of 
all right, I guess I'm supposed to praise God. We know he means it because he's calling others to do the same. He's literally calling them in. You ever had like a good dessert? You're like, oh man. For me, it's like jerky, but anyhow. <laughs> Come, like, do you, do you know how awesome this is? And, and you gather in the troops, right? That's what David is doing. He's calling not just family and those he trusts. He's calling everybody. 22 to 23, he says, praise him, my brothers. Then he says, the congregation, those who fear the Lord. All you offspring of Jacob and Israel, he's calling them in and he's saying, worship, worship with me. And then look closely at verse 23. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, praise him, glorify him, stand in awe of him. Back we'll go with the dessert. You say, this, this dessert is amazing. I want you to look at it. It is gluten-free, grain-free, egg-free, sugar-free. It is only by the hand of God that is held together. <laughs> and as I, he holds all things together, right? He has to hold this together. And as you take a bite of this, you will just see it is amazing. Look at all these things we know of it, and somehow it is amazing and it's giving me nourishment. Stand in awe of this dessert. This is what David is doing. David knows something about his God. Do you know that biblical counseling, here's the spoiler alert, biblical counseling is looking at your present situation and how your heart is responding to it, and then it's focusing on God. That's what you're doing. How's your heart responding to God? Where do you need to repent? Where do we need to look to God? What do you know about God? What are you bragging about God? Is this growing? You just speak of the same stuff. Are you able to say, well, I just found this out about God. What are you bragging about? Do you know God? David knows what's true of God Today, he says, praise God, look at my God, be in awe of my God. Verse 24, he says, why? Here it is, here's what David knows, and look at verse 24, he says, he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. David says, be in awe, he is holy, and yet he's not tired of me. He's holy, and yet he hasn't rejected me and said, you again? He hasn't done it, he's not like the spouse that says, enough. Enough. I can't take it enough. I didn't sign up for this. It's not like the parent that says, enough of your whining. I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired. I need a break. It's not like the friend who says, look, I just can't be around you anymore. This isn't going to work. This isn't what I signed up for. David says he's not hidden his face. My God has not looked away. He's heard the cries of the afflicted. Right now, then, that means you know that God has heard you. If you are crying out to God, then you know that he has heard you. And, man, how good is it to be heard? One of the most frustrating things is when you know you're being ignored. It's so frustrating. One of the things they tell you in the, in, um, we used to go to the old folks' home as kids to, to serve there with our church. 
They said, just listen. Just go there and listen. Just listen. How good to be heard, not when there's just a glazed look. You're looking off and you're talking to the person, but you're like, I don't, are you still here? Are you looking at me? Literally falling asleep in front of you. They're waiting for you to stop talking. You just see them, waiting to take a breath so I can talk. They're not listening. I know, I know what you're already thinking. Yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it, enough. How good to be heard. And here's the thing, if you are heard by God, if God is not fed up with you and he's actually listening to you, then you know what? You can rest. And when you just know sometimes that you've been heard, then it just, you can just rest. I mean, how much more with God? God has heard me. I can wait. I am not forsaken. Everything does not then hinge on this person understanding me. The world doesn't hinge on that anymore. Then if God has heard, it's not hinging on this person understanding me or giving me recognition or knowing the truth. Everything doesn't hinge on someone just having a story like mine or relating to me. Or me protecting myself to make sure, look, I'm... I can't say this because when they find out, they're going to maybe leave me. No, everything doesn't hinge on it because we have someone that has heard us and knows us and has not left us. David said he doesn't abhor us. Why is he holy and he still has not turned his face from me? He hasn't and he will not. And so we take great comfort in this. Take great comfort in this. So even when I feel forsaken by God, God is nowhere to be found. I will focus my attention on God. I will look at him in the past. I will look at him in the present. And third, I will look at my God in the future. Look at verses 26 to 31. In these verses, David says, shall, eight times. In six verses, he says, shall, eight times. David is describing the future, and David is not just simply saying, hey, look, it's pretty neat, things are going to work out one day for you. He's not just saying that, he's giving us specifics. Verse 26, he says, the afflicted shall be satisfied. Those who seek God, that is, pursue God, shall praise him. Then he says, no, there's more. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth, so Timbuktu, wherever that is, even there, and all the families of the nation, so not just Israel, but every nation, get this, every culture, he says, shall remember. That is, they'll show respect. They're going to turn to the Lord. That is, they're going to worship before him. Verse 29, he says, the prosperous now. And then he says, all who go down to the dust, they have nothing. Just like David. He says, I got nothing So the rich and the poor, they're all going to do the same. There's not going to be a place, he says in the future, a culture, no place, no culture, no one who will not acknowledge and bow the knee to our God. Did you know that? This isn't just our God here in harvest, and one day we're all going to just us here in this room bow down to him. This is the nations. He says the nations and every place, nothing will be untouched. There's not going to be anyone saying, who's in power again? Who, who's the prime minister? Who, who's, who's the president? Who's the king? No, no, we know who the king is. There will not be a question. And here's the thing. This is not speaking of universalism. This doesn't mean everyone gets to go into the throne room of God. This means that one day every knee will bow, for sure. 
but some to eternal life and some to eternal death. But there's no one who's going to hell that's going to say, I hate Jesus and I don't even know who he is. He's not king. No, no, I know who, king, who the king is. And I'm being punished for my sin eternally now. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And David knows this. Now, why is this encouraging? Why is this not super frustrating? If God is in control, if he is king, then it doesn't seem like he's ruling, does it? If you feel he's forsaken you, it certainly doesn't feel like he's ruling. Is this kind of like then the pitch of an absent father? You know, that promises, look, I'll make up for it. No, when I promise, you can count on me in, you know, 10 years from now, in the end, tomorrow, the next day, I'll make up for it. Is this what's happening here? Absolutely not. Here's what we know of the kingdom. Here's what David knew. The kingdom is here. Matthew 3, 2 says, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, the, the message of John the Baptist, Jesus has come, the kingdom is here. Yet we pray, and Jesus told us to pray in Matthew 6, 10, your kingdom come. Why? Because it's not fully here yet. It is here, but not fully realized yet, fully consummated yet. Notice what he says in verse 28. Look at verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Kingship belongs to the Lord, and he's ruling over the nations. What David is saying is this is happening in the future. Every knee will bow because not God will be king in the future because he is ruling, and look what he says. He is ruling now. He's ruling now. Jehardus Voss gives... Um, a definition of the kingdom, I'm going to have this on the screen here for you, and he says this, you know, in trying to wrestle with what's going on in our world right now, he says, the kingdom of God exists there, we're not merely where God is supreme, for that is true at all times, and under all circumstances, but where God supremely carries through his supremacy against all opposing powers, and brings men to the willing recognition of the same. So what Voss is saying is that God always rules. That's always been the case. But the kingdom coming is him pushing against all the opposing forces. It's them realizing at one point, at one day, that he in fact was always working and always bringing redemption. This is the greater story. So your suffering then is part of the story of the kingdom the suffering that you have now is not separate from it. It's actually part of the greater story of redemption. God's kingdom is here for sure, and he's ruling now. And yes, it's to come. So this matters today. This means that he is king over everything. This, this means then that though it seems the cancer is ripping out of control, that he's in control of the cancer. That means that he is king over it. But Kyle, he's it's ripping out of control, and I've cried to him. He is king. Do you trust him? He's king over the governments, the schools, the foods, the weather, anything you can imagine where you say, God, where are you and what is going on? He is king over it, and David is remembering this. He's king over the dogs and the lions and the bulls.
With the kingdom of God, though, things aren't always what they seem. But God is still ruling. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 9 says, We are hard-pressed on every side. It's what we see, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, confused, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned, not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. David continues to look at God in the future and says this in verse 30. And look at verse 30. He says, posterity, that is a seed, right? A remnant shall serve him, shall serve God. A remnant. Why does he say this and why does this matter? Because you and I were born for this. You ever heard of athletes and they say, man, I was born for this. You know, and the, 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 the commentators say, that guy was born to play basketball. That guy was literally, it seems he was born for this. And we look at them go through adversity. Think about your athletes and they go through, you know, a great injury. Or they get old and they come back from retirement. We're like, yeah, he was born for this. And we're like, here he comes again. He's coming a second wave and we love this. We're most impressed at this, and David knows this is us as followers of Christ. You were born for this. A seed shall serve him. If you have faith in Christ, then you were born to serve him. He says you're the offspring of Jacob and Israel, and we look back on their history and say things haven't changed. They were to serve God. They were born for this. Servant of the king. And the message is the same, proclaiming his righteousness. And suffering is the nature of the game. It hasn't changed. And the times of adversity when God seems to have forsaken you is when God shines most brightly. Did you know that? You were born for this. And when it feels like God has left you, you were born for this. A seed will serve God. You were born to serve God even when it feels he's forsaken you. So when you feel forsaken by God, you must keep your focus on God. Look from in the past, the present, and the future. And finally this, look at God, or sorry, look at Christ specifically on the cross. Look at Christ on the cross. In verse 31, the last verse, the proclamation is this. He has done it. He has done it. Now, if you read this psalm, how does David start the psalm off? My God, where are you, right? Where are you? You've left me. You've forsaken me. If you were to skip ahead to the last verse and read, he has done it, what would you conclude? He's done it. He's left me. It's true. If we were to take the psalm and read the first verse and the last verse, that last phrase, we would all have to conclude, I guess it's true, God has forsaken him. God has maybe forsaken us. But what has he done? He says in the last phrase of Psalm 22, he has done it. What? We've seen it through the whole psalm. He's not saying he's left me. He's saying clearly he's acted righteously. He is holy and he has been redeeming his people from the past, in the present, and in the future. He has done that. He has done that. And you can be sure of this. And how can you be sure of this? 
How can we be rock steady sure this morning? By looking at the cross. That's how we can be sure. The entire book of Psalm 22 is a prophecy of Christ. It's a prophecy of Christ on the cross. He was the one that they looked at. Isaiah 53 prophesied it. There's, there's nothing. He doesn't even look human. There's no semblance of humancy in him. He's a worm. His bones weren't broken. They were all out of joint on the cross. Crucifixion dislocated. They went to break his bones. They didn't break his bones. This is a prophecy of Christ. He was already dead. He was dried out the dust of death. They went to give him their drink. They said, here, have this. We're enjoying it. Why don't you? And he refused it. This is Christ. His hands and his feet were pierced. By what? By the nails on the cross. He was utterly alone, kissed by Judas, and betrayed. And all those closest to him left. This is our God. And he's on the cross. And he is utterly alone. And he's the one in Matthew and Mark. And maybe you um, thought of this when we read Psalm 22. He's the one that said the very words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said this. This is prophesying of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin for us who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The mystery is, is that Jesus Christ was actually forsaken by God the Father. He actually, and there's a mystery to it, he became sin. He was truly forsaken by God. And he was forsaken by God so that we never would need to be. You think of the worst thing you can possibly think of. Right now, I want you to think, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's the worst thing? What's maybe something you're terrified of happening? When it comes, if it comes, will you be quick to jump to the conclusion? He's done it. I know it. Here, he's done it. He's forsaken me. Will your life be like Psalm 22 and you jump to the end and you miss? No, he hasn't. He's not forsaken you. You jump to the conclusion and you say, I hate my God. I'm, I don't, okay, fine. I love him, but I don't really get it. And you're just frustrated at him and you've just had enough. You're cold towards him. You're running from him. You're rejecting him. Or will you instead say, no, 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 I'm not jumping to conclusions. I know this is what's happened and I know what he's done. What he's done and what he's doing is he's redeeming me. And he is saving me and he's working salvation. My God is awesome. Look at my God. Be in awe of my God. Hebrews 13, 5, quotes from Joshua. God has said, never, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. There is no greater crime the world has ever known, will ever known, than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is nothing more horrific, nothing. Nothing comes close. And from it came our greatest good. Nothing comes close. The gospel. Absolutely sure, it's amazing. And this guarantees that those who come to faith in Christ would never be forsaken by God. Why? Because Christ was. 
And what this guarantees then to this morning is if you are not trusting in Christ, then you are guaranteeing that one day you will be forsaken by God. You will be punished for your sin. Either Christ was punished for you or you choose ultimately to be punished. Christ was forsaken so that you never would be forsaken. John Piper says this, he says, and in concluding, he says, when the darkness will not lift, our faith rises and falls. It has degrees, but our security does not rise and fall. Our faith rises and falls. Sometimes we struggle, but he says our security does not have degrees. It has no degrees. We must persevere in faith. And so even when it feels like God has forsaken us, our faith is secure. Look lastly at verse 25. And, and you maybe skimmed this over. I know I had. Verse 25, remember, this is a prophecy of Christ, says this, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. This really is the words of Jesus Christ. It was custom in the day to make vows in great distress, to offer certain sacrifices and hold a feast then when you came out of your trouble. After deliverance, you would do this. And so Jesus is saying, I have been delivered. I have conquered the grave by my sacrifice. And now he's saying, enjoy the spoils. Enjoy the feast. Come, come, come. That's what he's saying. I have won. I have been delivered. David knew this when he wrote this. And it's a prophecy. Christ then offers us eternal life. Only Christ. Forgiveness of sins. These are the things at the feast. The inheritance of the saints. You have a home. Righteousness credited to you. The spirit of God in you. A new mind and a new heart. The resurrection. And it's because Christ has won it. He has never forsaken you. He is redeeming you. He has done it. 